The plant continued to use hidden manuals on the uranium handling procedure for 10 years, even though supervisors knew the procedures described were illegal. Welcome listeners to your research episode, brought to you by The Tale Teller. And that little snippet is basically the preface of this episode. Uranium, Japan, and illegal procedures. Yep, let's jump on in. Radiation has always been an interest to humanity. It is both complex, volatile, and can be profoundly destructive. Since its discovery and weaponization, or utilization as power, humanity has looked into the impacts of radiation on living organisms, especially humans. And this interest stems all the way back when experiments were conducted during the Cold War to examine radiation's effects on living beings which killed so many, humans and animals alike, relating specifically to cancers and cellular mutations. Outside of major nuclear events such as the bombing of Hiroshima, the fact is, it's difficult to understand radiation's effect on humans at a huge scale. The impact of a nuclear explosion, the likes of Nagasaki, or the meltdown of a nuclear facility like a nuclear power plant. And of course, the question is, why would you want to simulate something like that? But there have been cases where humans have been exposed to absurd levels of radiation. And in today's episode, we'll be exploring one such case. Or rather, a huge event. In this episode, we'll explore the 1999 Tokaimura nuclear accident itself. Covering what went wrong. News reports surrounding the event. The horrendous negligence carried out by JCO, the people that own the nuclear plant, and the non-existence of a plan, and how that negligence impacted the entirety of Japan. We'll also be looking at the three technicians exposed directly to uranium reaching criticality, and specifically what happened to Hisashi Oichi, how doctors treated him, the phases of radioactive poisoning over 83 days, and ultimately his demise. This is gory, not safe for work, and if you're squeamish, this is not the episode for you. So let's start at the beginning. It all started in the Takayamura nuclear plant. The Takai nuclear plant, earlier known as Japan Nuclear Plant, was commissioned in 1988 and had the capacity to process up to 3 tons per year of uranium, enriched up to 20%. This type of uranium was highly enriched uranium, and was a little higher than what is usually permissible, especially for the use in these particular nuclear reactors. The plant was built with a capacity of producing about 1.5 tons per year, and at a much lower enriched uranium level. But due to limited resources, low manpower, and the creeping pressure from competition, the highly enriched uranium, which is not really designed to be processed in this way by this particular plant, was processed regardless, effectively trying to output double the amount they would usually produce. The original plan on how this enriched uranium is processed was originally approved for this plant though, so nothing out of the ordinary there. The goal was essentially to produce a small batch of fuel using the Joyo Experimental Fast Breeder Reactor using uranium enriched to 18.8%. Part of this process creates a pure uranyl nitrate solution and is transferred to a storage column for mixing. The precipitation tank is surrounded by a water cooling jacket 
so that any chemical heat generated by the reaction is mainly dispersed, maintaining safety. But that depends on the amount of enriched uranium they intend to cool. And I'm purposely culling a lot of the information down just so we can kind of have a clear narrative here. And I'll only include the really important stuff. It was because of this last process that Hisashi and his colleagues were exposed to a crazy amount of radiation. Because there are a number of sequences that create a protective barrier for the uranium to be processed properly. And namely mitigates the uranium becoming critical or reaching criticality. So what actually happened? Well, on September the 30th, 1999, three workers were preparing a small batch of fuel for the experimental fast breeder reactor and they used highly enriched uranium. It was JCO's first batch of fuel for that particular reactor in three years. So a large batch for a relatively underused or not used and possibly poorly maintained reactor. But still, that's not where the problem resides. The core problem here though was that none of the workers had been given proper qualifications and training to help prepare workers for that job. They had previously used this procedure with lower levels of enriched uranium and had no knowledge that it could be dangerous with concentrations of 18.8% uranium enrichment, the standard usually being 5% for fuel. And that's what they were there for, to process it as a fuel. And here are some tiers of uranium enrichment and how they're used, with 20% being used for naval propulsion reactors and 60% and 90% being used for nuclear weaponry. In fact, that 18.8% was considered to be seven times the acceptable limit at the time by the Science and Technology Agency in Japan. So they were already processing above and beyond what they should be doing, not just in quantity, but in concentration. And as mentioned earlier, this is a 1.5 ton plant that's trying to process three tons worth. Really though, all in all, it was those in charge of this process who are at fault. JCO was trying to see if they could speed up the process by skipping some steps, which relates to missed deadlines for generating fuel that year. The only reason why they did this is because they've missed those deadlines and need to find a way to recoup that enriched processed uranium. But as I read more and more, this is nothing new for the team. They've done this before actually. And these shortcuts became the new process. Now, I'm not going to deep dive into the technicality of how they did it, but I'll light touch on it. So at around 10am on September 30th, Hisashi Oichi's 29-year-old peer Masato Shinohara and their 54-year-old supervisor Utaka Yokokawa tried a new proposed shortcut, as mentioned, to further speed up the process. None of them had any idea what they were doing. I mean, they knew the initial steps, but what they did not know was that highly enriched uranium with the volume they were processing, would lead to disaster. And what makes this sound even crazier, was that instead of using automatic pumps to mix 5.3 pounds of enriched uranium with nitric acid in a designated vessel, they used their hands to pour 35 pounds of it into steel buckets. Steel buckets. If someone tells me that this shit is radioactive, I first ask them, why the hell are we still here? then run as fast away from that location as possible to seek help. And by the way, this shortcut process that's been done for ages was actually formally approved. Someone signed off on this. So they've just poured it into buckets and have just started stirring it by hand. And by it, I mean the uranium. That still blows my mind. And that's actually when things go south very quickly. 
and I'm going to interject with some news report that took place during the event as it unfolded. Sloppy nuke procedure repeated. JCO technicians at the Takayanura plant used buckets to pour uranium solution directly into a settling tank on at least one other occasion before the September 30th accident. JCO officials also admitted they failed to use a containing tower, a narrow structure, to prevent uranium from reaching criticality in order to speed up production. At this point, like a scene from science fiction, the air and space in the room rippled outwardly from the bucket with a blue flash. Alarms began to blare out, confirming that a nuclear chain reaction had occurred and was releasing lethal emissions of radiation. The volume of the solution in the tank had reached 40 liters containing 16 kilograms of uranium and critical mass was reached. Here are some excerpts from the 1999 Washington Post regarding the incident. Extraordinary details of safety violations have come out daily since the incident. Officials of JCO Co. have told reporters and admitted to investigators that workers use an illegal procedure for the past seven or eight years. Other plant employees did not understand criticality, the combination of conditions that produce nuclear fission. Company officials also said they had not made any preparations for this kind of nuclear accident, in which an excess of uranium poured into a mixing container triggered a nuclear chain reaction, because they did not expect one. So no plan, no communication, and no education. Nucleonics Week, competition regulatory neglect viewed as possible Tokai causes. Multiple probes are underway at several levels of the Japanese government. Initial findings are placing blame on competition-induced cutbacks and regulatory neglect. According to sources close to the criminal investigation, JCO workers have told police that layoffs to meet overseas competition in uranium conversion are responsible for their colleagues' decision to skip vital safety procedures. JCO workers decided it was more efficient to mix the uranium in the precipitation tank directly, rather then directing it first through the special containers where uranium mass would be measured and limited. Workers have also reportedly told investigators that the cutbacks force everyone to take on more responsibilities and meet tighter schedules. In other investigations at central government levels, a senior Japanese nuclear safety expert said, the Takai accident is casting a harsh spotlight on STA's Science Technology Agency's regulatory site failures. Unlike the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, which regulates nuclear power facilities, SCA has habitually paid little or no attention to nuclear fuel cycle facilities once operating licenses have been issued. In addition, Kyoto News reports SCA has kept no resident inspectors at fuel cycle plants. I mean, really, you are asking for trouble here. No one's checking, monitoring, or even reporting. Furthermore, the STA has not required periodic safety reviews, has not established a system for qualifying shift supervisors, and has prepared no severe accident management guidelines or guidance for probabilistic safety analysis. So basically, could this happen? What are the chances of a nuclear accident taking place? They have no plans at all. So there are massive shortcomings and fail-safe procedures that just weren't there that allowed this to happen, not to mention promoting shortcuts at the expense of everyone, not just the workers' health, but the entire town that this nuclear plant serviced. And it isn't even the workers' fault, they're just listening to higher-ups, processes, and instructions. They weren't to know. 
Now, back to the bucket churning of enriched uranium. This, as I mentioned, was when the uranium went critical, releasing gamma and neutron radiation every direction throughout the facility. Whilst there was no explosion per se, the Cherenkov effect took place. The Cherenkov effect occurs when a particle carrying an electrical charge travels through a transparent medium like water or air. If the particle travels faster than light in this medium, its passage causes a brief flash of light, a Cherenkov light. So the technicians would have seen this pulse of blue light hit everything around them. This light is generated by the charged particle moving faster than the speed of light in the medium. Side note, Cherenkov effect is named by the Russian physicist Pavel Alkaseyevich Cherenkov. Apologies in advance for ruining that name. The processing of this fuel being used created a progression of fission products whilst inside the compound, blasting particles everywhere fast enough that it permeated through the walls. The process was also a wet enrichment. The significance of it being a wet process is actually important because that was one of the main reasons the uranium was able to hit critical mass. The water from the solution provided neutron moderation, which in turn expediated the reaction. Translation? It made it worse and allow for criticality to actually happen in the first place. The reaction was intermittent, lasting for about 20 hours. Information surrounding the event states that it appears the solution boiled vigorously, things you never want to hear about uranium and radiation. Voids began to form and critically ceased, then as the solution cooled down and the voids disappeared, the reaction started up again, building and building. The water surrounding the enriched uranium was in fact assisting in maintaining criticality. They needed a means to reduce the reaction, to subdue the point of criticality, otherwise it would continue to produce fission products, aka gamma and neutron radiation. Nuclear reactions emit some nuclear waste byproducts that result from the fission process. These are all particles or matter that are spawned as a consequence of the nucleus being split into two different parts. This can happen when, for example, a large nucleus, like uranium, splits into two smaller nuclei and then release off heat energy, kinetic energy of the nuclei, and gamma rays, the shit that ruins your life. They did this by draining the water surrounding the tank. Once the water cooled down, it wasn't able to reflect neutrons back into reactants anymore and slow down the whole point of criticality. They then used a boric acid solution that was added to the tank. This ensured that the contents remained subcritical, focusing on stabilizing the reaction. The event itself, though, exposed 27 workers to some serious radioactivity, forced out 300,000 surrounding civilians, led to 12 people having their DNA notably destroyed or damaged, and led to an over 15-hour lead installation and shielding, or alternatively, the deployment of sandbags to protect people outside the building from gamma radiation created due to the fission products from within the tank. Now, the three technicians working there, the people at point zero who were hit by the radiation were hit by the following radiation levels, and this always blows my mind. I'm not sure if a lot of people realize how much radiation is flying through these people. So let's start with the lowest amount, which is uh, Yokokawa, who received three sievet of radiation which is the equivalent of 600,000 dental x-rays, or 0.01 seconds, in Chernobyl right after disaster hour. Okay, so you've got that as a compass, alright guys? Now, then there's Shinohara, who was exposed to 10 civets of radiation. 
which is equivalent to 2 million dental x-rays or 0.03 seconds in Chernobyl after the disaster hour. And here is, of course, the main person here with most of the radiation, Hizashi Oichi, exposed to 17 sievert of radiation. This is the equivalent of 3.4 million dental x-rays or 0.06 seconds in Chernobyl after disaster hour. It's a miracle they didn't melt where they stood, but that's just not how radiation works, at least not that quickly. But there were some immediate effects. After they were hit by the uranium going critical, they all succumbed to stomach pain and nausea, with Oichi doubling over in an adjacent room due to the exposure to alpha and gamma and neutron radiation. What had happened in that split, split second was that their immune systems were obliterated. Their DNA damaged beyond repair, meaning no cellular replication, and their white blood cells disintegrated. Lymph nodes shot. And the reason why they didn't melt on the spot is because they still had existing cells in their body that were being used and had not yet been depleted. But nonetheless, the fatal dose for humans is Sievert 8. Hizashi received double that. Good God. For Hizashi, it was like standing in the middle of a microwave on max power. I mean, one Sievert is enough to cause cancer in the future way, way down the track. He got 17 times the amount. Now I'll move on to the actual effects of being hit with that much radiation. This is not for the faint of heart. October the 1st, 1999. The first symptoms of radiation poisoning for Hizashi was some immediate burns being visible on his skin. Then stomach nausea, followed by swelling in his right arm with a reddening of the skin, just around the immediate areas. But this was at the actual nuclear accident site itself. He hadn't been moved to ICU yet, and he was soon transported to the National Institute of Radiological Sciences and put in a room for observation and treatment. Hizashi was stable for days, which really honestly is remarkable. And it was reported that Hizashi himself was joking around with the nurses, commenting about going home and soon. He was wrong, and in the worst way possible. What Hizashi had unknowingly begun was the walking ghost phase of acute radiation poisoning. His body had already begun deteriorating and he just didn't realize it. In fact, no one did, especially since this severe amount of radiation he's absorbed. It's just simply unknown. And the reason that it wasn't showing or obvious was because it was taking its toll at a microscopic level. Just to put it in perspective of how unaware Hizashi was of his fate can be seen in his queries to the nurse regarding his health. He said, I thought I'd be able to leave the hospital in a month or so, but it's going to take longer, isn't it? He also said, when you're exposed to radiation like this, is there a risk of contracting leukemia or something? It goes to show how ill-prepared JCO made their employees. It's just straight up negligent. Shortly after being admitted to the ICU, Hizachi's skin began to fall off. His epidermis, the topmost layer of the skin, was no longer able to repair or replicate, and the skin cells are some of the most rapidly reproducing cells in the human body, and was the first visual cue that his health was going south. In most cases, you can see medical tape to support skin issues like this, but it was found too rough on his skin and gauze had to be used instead. This was the first obvious external and outward symptom of his radiation poisoning. 
The next phase affected his organs and their ability to function normally. His arteries' chest cavity and his lungs began to fill with fluid. Water accumulated in his chest and stomach and his bodily fluids began to ooze out of his skin. His skin was unable to repair at all and began to harden like armor, but was also sensitive to touch. The hospital said that they will continue giving him artificial respiration and carry out treatment to deal with infections, like heating the room and creating a clean room environment, mainly because Hazashi didn't have an immune system to defend himself, but more on this in detail later. Sometime after, he was unable to move or close his eyes, whilst also bleeding from his eyes. His wife did comment at one point that it was like he was crying blood. His fingernails fell off and his fingertips blackened, and muscle movement was impossible. At some point during this phase, he was put on high painkillers like fentanyl and morphine, which was one of the few mercies he received. His body further deteriorated with his intestinal wall dying and hemorrhaging blood and fluid internally over that time, which means anything he ate, anything he drank was just being wasted unused by the body. There was literally no means for his stomach to actually process the food that he ingested. Hisashi went through multiple colonoscopies. The endoscopy itself showed that the membrane had died and was pulling away from the intestinal wall, rotting from the inside, effectively poisoning him, releasing toxins right back into the body. Eventually, blood began overflowing and his organs were shutting down one by one. The heart, the kidney, and liver were all next. On the 59th day of Hisashi's treatment, his heart stopped three times in 49 minutes. On top of this, his condition continued to worsen as his kidneys and liver shut down. He then experienced respiratory failure, moved from assisted breathing to complete reliant on a machine delivering respiration for him. He was no longer able to breathe on his own accord. Hisashi then developed hemophagocytic syndrome, which speaks to an abnormal autoimmune response where blood builds up in the liver and spleen. His body began to then completely shut down and moved him into a coma. His health further declined to a point where in December 21st, 1999, the 83rd day after the incident, Oichi died at the age of 35 years old. This wasn't just acute radiation, it was catastrophic radiation poisoning. His cells had been so damaged at a DNA level that they effectively lost the plans to make the human body function. It's like carrying a briefcase full of documents to work that outline exactly what you do for a job, when you do it, how you do it, and are documents built off of eons of people who've worked in the same role as you before you. Then you press the elevator button to go to work, and your briefcase explodes, and you no longer know how to use an elevator. Hisashi's body was in deadlock. The cells he had in his body originally were carrying out their basic purpose, having been created and delivering on a very basic chemical level, but the instructions to carry out any task in that space after that, well, it's like having their instructions arrays of the things to do whiteboard. As soon as Hisashi received that blast of radiation, he had died. And the doctors and nurses and his family witnessed this, did all they could to help. The doctors worked closely to inform the family of Hisashi's status each day, and did their utmost to keep them informed. There is a debate though on whether they were clear in ever pointing out to them the hopelessness of trying to save someone exposed to such a dose. This was a relatively unknown, or to the most, 
a theoretical only situation where this situation should never have happened. So theorizing solutions was all they really could do at this point. No one had received this level of radiation and therefore there were no checks and tests beyond the basic and no cures or remedies to treat that level. The doctors tried focusing on using new techniques to try and save his life. One such technique was called peripheral blood stem cells, using his sister, who was a compatible donor, to transfer her blood and utilize those blood cells to create a print or mold, you could say, for his body to create new blood cells from. And then his immune system would follow suit. And the amazing thing is, it worked. Until the existing irradiated cells began damaging the cells provided by his sister. Radiation permeated through every part of his body, and even infected, or destroyed rather, the new cells he just inherited. That's how irradiated his body was. As the Japanese doctors reached out to the global community for help, there was a suggestion from a Russian doctor to amputate his right arm, to mitigate the poisoning of his body where those toxins would return back into his circulatory system and make him sicker. Now that seems like a sound plan, however, this was turned down, because the amputation would lead to further hemorrhaging and Hisashi had no capacity to grow new cells, let alone heal with an absence of platelets in his blood cells. Platelets are basically kind of like organic band-aids that bundle together to create clots. They kind of look like squishy putty that sticks to walls that are damaged in your body. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, the doctors didn't even carry out biopsies in the fear that Hisashi would just continue to bleed and bleed and bleed. The doctors and nurses also created a special clean room for Hisashi, which basically meant sterilizing a room through heat treatment. This worked on keeping the bacteria away, but also maintained his body temperature, which he could no longer manage. It was reported that there were two air filters at the head of the bed to ward off any bacteria, molds, or viruses in the environment. And alongside this, Hisashi was placed in a special, like, rolling bed that would rock back and forth to prevent bed sores and lung problems. The bed had very, very thick, dense padding attached all around it to make sure that Hisashi wouldn't slip off as it moved around. When it came to cleaning Hisashi, it took 10 people to replace his gauze, which was covering him from head to toe, and that took about 3 hours in total. They would use the moisture in the bandages stripped from his body to determine how much moisture was lost, and would use that as a guide to infuse the liquids of that amount back into his body. These people were doing their utmost to keep this man alive, but you can imagine the amount of pain going through Hisashi's body, and it's not surprising that Reports say that Hisashi got angry at times. But I mean, the man is effectively melting. There were instances that the doctors and nurses were surprised that as time progressed and the pain increased, that they were reportedly taken aback by how his mood changed. I mean, no shit, you're melting and you're surprised by his cheerful demeanor changing. They said that he had always been cheerful, I think mainly in that ignorance was bliss, where Hisashi was able to have hope the first couple of weeks prior to understanding or feeling that he was on death's door, to then becoming upset and aggressive, and potentially losing hope, not feeling like anything's actually working. I just have a strong suspicion that there's not a lot of communication or knowledge of what's going on in this space. It was quoted that he had said to the doctors that he's not a guinea pig, and rightfully so. And Hisashi was put through some pretty painful procedures. 
One particular one involved his lungs being expanded via a tube by the nurses that reportedly pushed him over the edge. Again, I'm not surprised. He was in understandable agony, stating that he wants to sleep, go home, enough's enough basically, and be with his family. And on the topic of caring for Hisashi, there's a myth around the image of Hisashi himself that I want to help debunk. The image where he's suspended in a hospital bed and appears to have no skin on his body, and accounts that provided evidence against that, here's what I found. The person that most people see in the pictures regarding Hisashi, where the man has an amputated foot and is red all over, is not actually Hisashi. Hisashi never had any part of his body amputated. As I mentioned, if they had done that, he would have bled to death. Hisashi was not missing all of his skin either by the time of his death. His autopsy stated that the skin on his back appeared relatively normal, but on the skin remaining on his front, it was red, like he had been burnt. And that's actually due to the position he was when he received the blast. So evidence points that the image itself is not him, but a burn victim and part of the debridement treatment for those severely burnt. Debridement of the skin is usually the peeling or removal slash cleaning of thickened layer of burned skin. It's an extremely painful process and usually only used on burn victims or heavily burn victims. But I digress. Going back to the treatment of Hisashi, many query if it was cruel to keep him alive for the 83 days, and I'll leave that to your thoughts to decide. Much of the material I've read leads to the family approving to try as many medical treatments as possible to save Hisashi, which is admirable, amidst the insanely difficult task to come up with those treatments and to think of ones that would not outright jeopardize and kill Hisashi. Testament to the willpower and strength of the nurses and doctors, but also the family itself. And as I keep reading, and the more I understand about the staff at the hospital and the family, and a little bit about everyone involved, it's really clear how little everyone involved knew about the effects of radiation on the body. This was unprecedented. The damage caused by the neutron beams passing through the body at this level had never been seen before. These nurses and doctors did the best they could, whilst flying blind. His family were reported to have been in a state of denial, but I can understand also that you're watching the person you love go through such trauma, such agony, and all you want to do is help them. Do everything you can, pull as many resources as possible, and never stop trying to get them better. His family, much like those around him, were unable to comprehend the damage done by the radiation. And this is my own opinion here, but information, knowledge in this space in 1999 about radiation was just not readily available. A person like me back then wouldn't be able to hop online and do their research, check sources, absorb content, or receive affirmations of said content from people around the world. The family only had the doctors and scientists as their first point of call and only point of call. They relied on these people who were learning themselves, so I totally understand why they clung onto the hope, and I feel that it's a lack of knowledge or awareness of how dire the situation was that pushed the treatment of Hisashi from, let's say, 30 days or 40 days where he went to the coma, but to the instead full 83 days where he succumbed to radiation poisoning. And when I refer to them flying blind, I mean blind in the sense that no one's dealt with a patient that's absorbed 17 sieverts of radiation. But I'll let you decide. Now lastly, I've handpicked live reports at the time of the event that document key aspects of the aftermath of this. I wanted to explore what took place after Hazashi's death, the external impact this event had on Japan, and also share some content that you wouldn't normally have access to or find. 
So let's jump on in. The failure. Uranium shortcuts had okay. Since the accident, investigators have been questioning workers at the plant. As a result, it has been established that five JCO workers rotating in three-man shifts had since September 10th been preparing to process uranium solution to be used as fuel at the Joyo FBR. A deputy chief in the processing division told police that a superior had approved the uranium processing shortcuts. Next report, innocent victims. Firefighters, MSNBC. Missteps focus on Japan nuke probe. Firefighters called in to help injured workers say they were never warned of a potential release of radioactivity and went into a dangerous area without protective gear. Firefighters were among those exposed to radiation. New York Times. Experts say lapses led to Japan's A plant failure. After touring the plant earlier this week, energy department experts said the Japanese accident occurred largely because managers counted on the workers to follow the rules but never explained why the rules were important. Experts said the managers should have concentrated on providing equipment designed to make such accidents impossible. The technicians were trying to carry out a task with incorrect equipment. The workers should have stored the material in a tall, column-shaped cylinder, a shape that would have prevented the critical mass from forming. But. The workers wanted to fill a toilet container, so they put the dissolved uranium in a second vessel, intended for another purpose entirely, the expert said. This second vessel had a circular shape and a spigot that was easier to use, but encouraged the chain reaction. Worse still, it was surrounded by a shell filled with cooling water. The water functioned as a reflector bouncing neutrons from the uranium back into the tank, improving the conditions for a reaction. The workers apparently did not understand the reasoning behind the rules that limit the sizes of batches and containers. Inadequate documentation. JCO gave authorities inadequate documents. According to sources, in November 1983, JCO failed to mention in documents submitted to STA for safety approval the final procedure in the production of nitric acid solution containing uranium. The agency and the Nuclear Safety Commission plan to question JCO on this revelation since neither were apparently aware that JCO did not submit complete documents. The Associated Press Blame Game The Nuclear Safety Commission Investigative Committee submitted an interim report on the accident to Prime Minister Kiazo Obuchi and SDA Chief Hirofumi Nakasone. The report squarely places blame on the Science and Technology Agency for failing to uncover illegal procedures at the uranium processing plant run by JCO while also criticizing its risk management system for nuclear facilities as inadequate. It also confirmed that the direct cause of the accident was the negligence of proper operation procedures for uranium processing by JCO employees. Atomic plant in Japan used illegal processes. For at least two years, the uranium processing plant has been using illegal procedures to handle uranium and other dangerous materials. The three workers injured in the accident were following a company manual when they poured the uranium mixture from a bucket into a settling tank. But this time, the supervisor instructed the workers to use a 35-pound capacity tank instead of a smaller one. Their workers were involved in processing 126 pounds of uranium for use in an experimental breeder reactor program. Japan nuclear accident. Tokaimura Maya said that even though the town had been declared safe, it was economically and psychologically scarred. Residents are asking the town's name be changed because nothing that says Takaimura 
will sell anymore. In a speech, the mayor urged Japan to seek other forms of energy and said nuclear power should not be the only choice. Japan should not take the position that nuclear energy is everything. Mayanichi Daily News Turkai leak is killing tourism in Ibaraki. Many ports famous for the anglerfish delicacy have been hard hit by deteriorating tourism in the fallout from the accident. Hirakata and another town in the Ibaraki prefecture, which attracts some 20,000 tourists from other prefectures between March and November each year, have so far suffered more than 70% decline in visitors. And lastly, Mainichi Daily News. Takai residents demand new compensation. More than 20 lawyers and officials from JCO and Sumitomo Metal Mining Co. assembled at an office near JR Takai Station, which opened recently to deal with complaints and queries from residents. According to JCO officials, they received nearly 80 claims within two hours of the office's opening. One day earlier, the Japan Atomic Energy Insurance Pool, JAEIP, a nuclear energy underwriter organized by 43 insurance companies decided to pay up to 1 billion yen to cover damages by the accident. If the amount of damage exceeds 1 billion yen, the company would be responsible to pay the rest, but the government could also cover the cost of compensation pending approval. And this concludes today's episode of Hisashi Ouchi, The Japanese Walking Ghost. Listeners, I hope this episode reached you well and that you found it interesting. This is my 800th episode, and although the subject is morbid, there were so many learnings to be had from researching this space. I hope it broadened your understanding of the impact radiation has on the human body, how mistakes like these happen, and their after effects. Also, if there are facts that are incorrect or you think that I've mispronounced something, let me know. Send me an email via storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. I'm all ears when it comes to that kind of stuff. Or write in the comments and I'll definitely check it out and even amend it if need be. I also want to welcome a brand new slash returning Patreon supporter, Matto Bauer. A huge thank you, an immense thank you in fact, for returning in support of my own Nighty Titan tier. That puts you straight up into the Hall of Fame with Maya. And a massive thank you to you, Maya. Matto, this means secret updates from me on unique content for the show, information about where the show is heading content-wise, and directly shaping improvements to the show that all listeners will hear. Your support covers larger costs like production design and art design. Thank you and welcome again, you living legend. You now have a very special place in this podcast's history. And similarly, my awesome and amazing people, my epic white tea warlord, the man of utmost loyalty, the special guy that has my back, Leza Bauzuka. Thank you, you amazing man, you, for supporting this show. You're responsible for supporting websites, pop shields, authors, repaired old time radio, sound effects, music, and putting a smile on my face every single week. Cheers, you legend, and thank you for your kindness. And the awesome people that send their love my way who also play a huge part collectively in helping this show punch up, I'm lucky to have Chad Warren, Just Heather, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kramer. Thank you all, you amazing people, and I hope this episode was eye-opening. I've included in the show notes all of my research, so feel free to peruse and have a look in the episode notes, 
and here's to another 800 episodes. Now, write your story, share your tale, make it creepy or something silly about a snail, but remember that little tremor that crawls up your spine, or the tingle that makes you smile from a perfect plotline. That's the magic of storytelling, like tea, it's divine. You took the time to listen to me, and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends, for the listen. And as always, till next we meet. Thank all of you for listening and joining me on this 800th episode. You're all so special. And thanks for listening. Mwah.